Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pansloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 3 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we focus on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. The theme of season three is the road to Doha. We will be exploring issues relevant to the LDCs ahead of the fifth UN conference on the least developed countries in Doha, Qatar in 2022. We begin in the Pacific, where some of the most critical issues of climate resilience and economic development are playing out. We're very pleased today to speak with Michelle Reddy, Chief Executive and Fund Manager of the Fiji Women's Fund. Michelle is also a partner of UNCDF, serving as a member of the Technical Advisory Committee of the UN Pacific Insurance and Climate Adaptation Program run by UNCDF. Michelle, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Please tell us about yourself, Michelle. Where are you from? What did you study? And what led you to the Fiji Women's Fund? So I identify as a queer Pacific feminist and women's rights activist. I work and reside in the Fiji Islands in the Pacific region. In university, I studied literature and language and explored the world of teaching young young adults and then moved into development studies. I joined a feminist program called Emerging Leaders Forum, which really opened up my eyes to the patriarchal world that we live in. It really ignited my undying passion and commitment to changing the world. Having worked in the women's rights movement in Fiji and the Pacific for over 10 years, the opportunity to lead in the creation of the first national women's fund in the Pacific, the Fiji Women's Fund, really excited me. And so I joined in 2017 as a fund manager. And what is the fund's investment thesis? So for us at the Fiji Women's Fund, our thesis is that transformative and sustainable change for gender equality can only happen if you invest long-term core support financially in women's rights and feminist movements and organizations. We see our role as women's funds to influence aid and philanthropy to ensure that those resources, particularly financial resources, that really matter in tackling gender inequality are reaching women's rights and feminist organizations. As resource mobilizers, We as women's funds are guided by the experiences and the knowledge of women's rights and feminist organizations and movements. They are the closest to the problem and the most suited in identifying their own solutions grounded on their own reality. And so it sounds like the Fiji Women's Fund is making mostly grants to NGOs and women's organizations. Is that correct? That's correct. Alongside with grants, we also provide non-financial resources such as capacity development support that range from financial management to child protection, monitoring, evaluation, learning. We seek out specialized technical support, particularly in the business sector. And so alongside grants, we also provide additional non-financial resources. And how big is the Fiji Women's Fund? Do you mean in number of staff? In terms of resources, how much funding does it have? So currently, core support comes from the Australian government for a five-year period, which amounts to Australian $10.5 And alongside that core support, we have other funders that have joined us in supporting organizational strengthening. And can you give us an example of one of the NGOs or programs that would be supported by the Fiji Women's Fund? 
So one of the organizations that we support is called Rise Beyond the Reef. They really work in the bar area and specialize in contemporary art. The other organization that we support is a service provider called the Medical Services Pacific, which provides support to survivors of domestic violence through counseling, as well as medical support for sexual assault cases. And there must be such a wide range of needs among the population that you're serving, women in Fiji. How does the Fiji Women's Fund determine which organization or NGO will receive funding? So we have a really clear criteria as to who we fund. Our philosophy is that for lasting change, we do not fund individual women, but we rather fund women's organizations, groups, and networks because we believe that they contribute to movement building and enhancing the feminist and women's rights movement. So there is a criteria that really helps us determine what and who we can fund. We have a grants committee that's made up of members of our governance board as well as members that come from the women's movement who then use the criteria as well as an assessment process to determine which areas we should grant it, for instance, thematic areas or geographic areas. One key learning that the Fiji Women's Fund has had in the four years of grant making is to always analyze our funding portfolio to really see who we are funding, but most importantly, what are the gaps that exist So that when we do put out the next call for funding, we're really particularly targeting those gaps to ensure that the funding of the Fiji Women's Fund really is more diverse and more applicable and reaching particularly rural and remote women's groups and organizations. And how do you assess the different types of organizations that are coming to you to meet needs for women in Fiji? For example, economic rights versus support to domestic violence survivors versus something else. What is the balance of the type of organizations that you fund and how do you try to meet all the needs of the women in your community? As I said, the analysis that we do after each grant is closed really provides us with an insight as to which thematic area we are funding a lot in and which thematic area we probably are not doing as much funding to it. And really asking ourselves, why is that? Is it because our processes are too difficult? Is it because we are not sharing information that's relevant and accessible? So for instance, what we found out that a lot of rural and remote women's groups really did not know how to access our online forms. And so it required us to then support them using government agencies such as the Ministry of Women. They have women's interest offices. So sending them the forms, using online platforms to go through the questions so we're able to answer and also provide some examples. We also learned very earlier on that language can be a barrier. So not everybody is a writer and not everybody writes in English. They prefer to answer verbally. And so we've been adaptable in looking at other ways to ensure that we do get applications from a particular geographic area or looking at minority and marginalized groups. Please tell us about the work that you're doing on the Technical Advisory Committee of the Pacific Insurance and Climate Adaptation Program. So I believe when Krishnan and the team reached out to me, it was really looking at the role that I've played in the women's movement, particularly in Fiji and then also in the Pacific, and bringing that strong feminist and gender analysis 
in terms of looking at the applications, asking some of those really uncomfortable questions, and at the same time offering some technical support, but also some suggestions as to how applications or applicants can strengthen their proposal to ensure that it has a gender lens within that and that they are really tailoring the program or project that supports the needs of women, girls, and gender non-conforming communities in Fiji. And can you give us an example for our audience? Because some people may not be familiar with how you would apply a gender lens to, say, insurance. So could you give us an example of what kind of perspective you would bring to that conversation? I think one of the basic one is really asking questions in terms of insurance. How many women have access to insurance? What are the barriers to it? Is it technological barrier? Is it a knowledge barrier? What's the solution? And really testing those solutions to see whether um, women are able to access either an insurance scheme or an electronic scheme. One great example is a M-Pesa platform that's really gone viral in Fiji for a lot of our grantee partners that work and live in the rural and remote communities that may not necessarily go to banks every day or go to ATMs every day. The M-Pesa platform really provides them an ability to pay for bills, to transfer money to businesses, but also to family members. And I know from experience that there was a lot of testing that was done on that platform and really nuancing that platform to ensure that it was applicable and accessible to a range of users in Fiji. Fantastic. And for our audience, that M-Pesa is a digital payment solution that was piloted in East Africa. But of course, we know that you can't just take a model from somewhere and then drop it into somewhere else. So I know our UNCDF teams did quite a lot of work on, as you say, Michelle, customizing it and making sure that it would work in the Fiji context. It's literally the best thing ever. I mean, almost all our grantee partners talk about it. And even we've been using that for transfer of money. For instance, smaller groups, they prefer getting their grant in installments and during a pandemic where they can't access banks. It's just an amazing platform. I use it myself and I really like it. It's really accessible. That's great to hear. And especially in a place like Fiji, where you have multiple islands and people are separated from each other by large geographic distances, even when there isn't a pandemic, a solution like this seems like it would be really useful. Indeed. So Michelle, you've worked to support both peacebuilding efforts and women's rights in Fiji. How can impact investing support these objectives? I was first introduced to impact investing in 2019. And to be honest, I'm still trying to understand this better. I do know from experiences of other women's funds, such as the Equality Fund, that impact investment, particularly gender lens investment, offers an answer. So, you know, you're looking at providing a promising pathway to tap into existing and new financial markets with investments in a gender equal future. You're using capital to influence the way that businesses addresses the needs of many, and then using those returns from those investments to fund the much needed work on the ground such as peace building and gender equality, I really do believe that everybody plays a role towards peace building and particularly gender equality. And I know from experience that both public and private funds can make all the difference towards achieving gender equality. No one sector can do that alone. Absolutely. And are you seeing much impact investing happening in Fiji? 
Not that I'm familiar with. I do know that there was Australian funded program called Pacific Rise and they had done a couple of impact investment portfolios. I'm not very familiar with them, but I have heard that there's potential to use that as a way to investigate gender lens impact investment. And one of which we are keen to explore. I'm part of the Pacific Feminist Fund Advisory Committee. The idea is to have a regional women's funds that does not just fund in Fiji, for instance. So we are national fund. We can only support groups in Fiji. But if you have a women's fund that's regional, you are able to fund across the Pacific. But the other element to it that really is of great interest is how you can have a gender lens impact investment. And really, for me personally, learning a lot of that from the Equality Fund, because that's the way, that's the modality that they have. And it makes sense also in the Pacific, where you have small populations that are also separated by a long distance and oceans that you'd want to have a regional solution that could scale to meet the needs of more Pacific Islanders. So, Michelle, of course, Fiji is a Pacific island and uh, small island developing states are the most vulnerable to climate change. Why is the issue of climate change so critical for countries like Fiji? I think for one thing, besides the impact of the global pandemic, the Pacific Islands has had to also face grueling storms and rising tides of a changing climate that threatened to swallow the land and lives of many who call it whole. And when you look at the contribution of Pacific Islands to greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, it's so tiny. But like all the small island developing states, I actually prefer large ocean developing states. We really suffer disproportionately from the effects of global warming. And if you examine it a lot more from a gender perspective or feminist perspective, you will see that climate change, again, affects women, girls and gender nonconforming people disproportionately. Pacific women make up the highest global victims of violence in the world. And despite this, they continue to persist, making significant contributions to human security within their families, communities, and nations. And across the Pacific, when you look at any natural disaster, women are always at the forefront of recovery efforts, either in their homes or in the wider community. And one thing that's always bothered me is when you can see women at the forefront, you can also see that women's experiences are not necessarily accounted for when decisions are made, particularly towards climate change. One key thing that we've also noticed as a resource mobilizing of the movement is that despite the myriad of climate adaptation and green funding available for the Pacific, feminist climate activism remains largely undervalued and underfunded. And because of that, a lot of the women's organizations have really faced the brunt of shrinking spaces and resources to participate and mitigate the challenges of these crises. What we are also seeing is, whilst there are some funding, in the last couple of months, most of the funding that's going towards feminist climate activities are usually going through gender equality and humanitarian grants. So there is definitely a need to look at funding feminist climate activism, particularly for the Pacific region. Again, forgive the basic question, how is feminist climate activism different from regular climate activism? I think that feminist climate activism and regular climate activism, there is a synergy. And actually, one of the partners that we're working with, Mamakesh, there is a global alliance which brings both the movements together. I think feminist climate activism takes a great gender lens as to asking how are women affected? 
Why are they affected? What are the ways that we can bring women's experiences in spaces? Who gets to make the decision and how is that decision going to affect largely women and gender non-conforming people? So there is some difference, but there's also great synergies between the two movements, just as there's great synergies between the women's movement and disability movement. I think social movements across the world always have a goal that you want to work towards, right? And there are times when those movements really can collaborate and really can ignite mass movement. Thank you so much for that explanation. So how have Fijian women weathered the pandemic, Michelle? We know that in the U.S., for example, women have really disproportionately borne the brunt of job losses from the pandemic. What's the situation in Fiji? So our analysis based on experiences of our grantee partners, which are more than 20 grantee partners, what they're saying is that there's definitely a widening gap in gender disparity. So for instance, when there are lockdown and isolation efforts happening, which are really done to save lives, in those instances, many women become prey to abuses within their homes. And we've seen that domestic violence really increases during those times. And it not only affects physical health, but it also affects mental health. The same also applies to gender non-conforming communities that, again, lockdown and isolation efforts really intensify and exacerbate existing discrimination. There, like the U.S., the demise of income has also decreased women's ability to access basic needs and services. Unemployment has become more rampant amongst women since women are more likely to be employed in the services sector. And that in Fiji, I mean, has been severely impacted by COVID, as I'm sure across the world. The other finding that's coming out is that there is a geographic gap. You are seeing rural and remote communities left behind in response efforts. Despite the belief that rural communities in Fiji have not been greatly affected, we know from our partners that rural women are also feeling the impact of the pandemic restrictions and are often cash poor. So whilst these communities may not have food security issues. They fall outside of, for instance, a containment zone, but are heavily reliant on them for income and access to essential services. Another finding that's coming is that rural communities are also reporting a technological or telecommunication challenge. So for instance, most mobile phones in rural households are often held or owned by men. And often this is a simple analog phone. And whilst there is this perception that, that phones are cheap and you can own one, that's not true for rural communities. We know from our partners that in some villages, the whole community is using one smartphone to gain access to supermarkets. And that really completely defeats the purpose of contact tracing protocol. So there is a geographical gap, particularly when you look at rural and remote communities. There's also a structural gap women are more likely to be excluded from social protection schemes. So whilst there's two great forms of Fijian government social protection schemes, such as the Fijian National Provident Fund and the COVID-19 benefits and cash assistance that's available to Fijians, these schemes do not equally benefit women. Firstly, there are fewer women compared to men who are members of the Fiji National Provident Fund. Secondly, more women are employed in informal sector, as I said earlier on. And so they are then excluded from having any pension savings to draw on. And again, the issue of access to this program requires a mobile phone. 
There is also an economic gap that we're seeing this increasing food insecurity. We're nearing the fifth month of restricted movement and many wage earners are still unable to return to work. And so all across Fiji, we're seeing food insecurity being increased. Former grantee partners from the communities that they work with, they've definitely seen an increase for food ration requests. And among some of those items that they're requesting are hygiene products, baby formula and diapers. And requests are not only just coming from the unemployed, it's also coming in from individuals who are employed, but are not receiving any income because they have exhausted all leave options and so do not get any pay. The other area that we are seeing is a services gap. So some of our grantee partners are saying in communities, personal protective equipment or supplies are inaccessible. In Fiji, it's now mandatory for everybody to wear masks. And some of the reports that are coming in from our grantee partners are saying that PPEs are costly, they're scarce and not available in communities. And so we've been getting requests from our partners for provision of PPEs, particularly in maternal health facilities for homeless members living on the streets, from small businesses, isolation facilities, public health volunteers. However, when we look at those shortages, it's also created new opportunities for a lot of women. So for instance, one of our grantee partner, which is called the Women Entrepreneurs and Business Council, is seeing that a lot of their members, which are women-led small businesses, finding alternative livelihoods by diversifying into making masks, reusable diapers, and sanitary pads. Thank you for sharing these challenges. It sounds like the pandemic has added to the already considerable challenges of women in Fiji. So if there was one thing you could do, Michelle, to accelerate progress for women in the Pacific, specifically in Fiji, what would it be? I really think that having come from an activist organization such as the Fiji Women's Rights Movement and working in the movement for a long time, I strongly believe that setting up a Pacific Feminist Fund, a regional fund that has both a grant-making portfolio, but also combines a gender lens investing arm into progressing women and gender non-conforming people's lives is really important because women's funds really provide that flexible long-term co-funding. And I'm quite proud to be part of a group of Pacific feminists that are part of the Pacific Feminist Fund and helping set that up. I think that women's funds really as uh, resource mobilizers can shift and move aid and philanthropy in ways that are accessible, applicable, relevant, flexible, and adaptive to the needs of women's rights and feminists that work on the ground and that tackle these issues on a daily basis. Thank you. Well, we hope that some listeners of our podcast will take this into account and that we'll get more attention for the Pacific Feminist Fund and the great work that you're doing in Fiji. So thank you very much, Michelle, for joining us today and giving us a vivid look into your work in Fiji. Pinaka esta. And thank you to our audience for joining us on UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and on our website, www.uncdf.org.